that was a whole roller coaster ride that I just went on with Beetlejuice. Bunny from hills. not knowing what it was to feeling like a fool for not knowing it was Orion's armpit to thinking that we are all going to possibly be obliterated at any moment to being like, it's all going to be okay. Probably okay. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am so excited. I am here in Las Vegas, and I I had such a wonderful time. The first leg of my Vegas residency at Area 15 and getting ready to launch a big national tour and everything. And, and uh, a lot of fun opportunities have come up along the way. I've met some cool people since being here. And one of them is Andrew Kerr, who is the head of the Las Vegas Planetarium. Yep, we're uh, the Dale Etheridge Planetarium. We just got renamed uh, last year for the uh, the first and only other manager uh, of the planetarium. Uh, it's been 46 years or something like that, and I'm only the second manager of the planetarium. Really? Yep, so my, my predecessor was there for 38 years. Um, what were planetariums like 46 years ago? Uh, well, actually, uh, very similar to what uh, we have today, with one big exception. Don't tell customers that. Uh, <laughs> don't no, don't no, tell no, them no. you have <clears throat> No, they're, they're, it's actually okay, because yeah. the, the, the major difference, of course, is, is the idea of the digital planetarium versus the, uh, the old star ball. So the, the old star projectors, which everybody tends to think of as being in the planetarium, you know, the, the two spheres, one on each side, and the stars being projected on the dome that way, uh, that's, that's one of the, the, the biggest differences. And, and, and it's not even a difference in some planetariums, because some planetariums still maintain their star balls. Uh, uh, there are some planetarium folks who absolutely prefer the starball look for the stars in the sky. Um, no one decided to call them space balls. Uh, no, as a no homage? that that would be very funny too, actually. But uh, yeah, no, starballs is just what they've always been referred to, and so sp- space balls would have been funny. Yeah, uh, um, but yeah, the the starball has actually been around for a hundred years, uh, and so the very first planetarium opened a hundred years ago uh, in Jena, Germany. Um, and so we're going to be celebrating this fall and, and into next year, the 100th anniversary of the planetarium. Oh, planetariums. Well. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and how many, how many, how are planetariums doing these days? I mean, did, when, when was the peak planetarium? It's, it's so interesting because now there's, well, we're, we're here in Vegas. You have some pretty stiff competition now. I, I, I definitely have a lot of competition. We, we're not a destination planetarium. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's the big difference. Uh, there are a lot of planetariums out there that that are destinations it's places that that folks come to specifically to go to the planetarium so you're looking at like the adler planetarium in chicago and and down at griffith observatory their planetarium there those are destinations people do that but uh you know our planetarium while we are 
one of two in the entire state of Nevada. Um, we're not really a destination. There's there's not a lot of folks who come in from outside to come to Las Vegas who are who are coming to the planetarium. Right. We, we see a few tourists who come in because they say, oh, well, this is interesting. Hey, there's a planetarium here. Uh, let's go ahead and go. But uh, but yeah, for the for the most part, uh, uh, locals, people at school yeah, and stuff. It, and exactly. We get a lot of locals, but we do a lot of field trips. Uh, yeah. and, and and that's really our bread and butter because, uh, you know, we're, we're attached to the College of Southern Nevada as well. And and so I, I like to kind of think of the planetarium as an entry point for mm. kids to come to college as well. Um, and we have a lot of a lot of students in, in Las Vegas who would be first generation college students. And so getting them interested in CSN uh, through the planetarium is one of those things that's really good for all of us. Mm. Yeah, I, I had one in uh, UWL, the, the uh, University of Wisconsin Lacrosse had a planetarium I'd go to as a teenager, and that's that's not the biggest school in the world. Um, oh, no. And so they they must have planetariums all over the place at universities. Uh, they they actually do, but it's more on the East Coast. Okay. Uh, in the 1960s, the during the space race and and with the moon landings and everything, planetariums really exploded, um, especially on on the East Coast. There were high schools and grade schools that put in dome theaters for planetariums in the 1960s uh, just because of that that whole interest in the space race, the whole us versus them mentality of the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. And and so a lot of planetariums sprung up at that time. Uh, back at the first planetarium I worked at in Ohio, uh, there was a school about 15 miles away and they asked me to come in and look at what they had uh, to see if we could get it up and running or help them help them do anything with it and unfortunately we weren't really able to do it at the time but uh, but so so yeah a lot of schools uh, especially in the 60s and 70s really really pushed planetariums and and a lot of those have kind of fallen by the wayside now at this point hmm. um, and and so you you wrote me you dm'd me on twitter uh, a while back and it's actually i mean i go through long periods of time where i never check twitter i very rarely check my dms on any social media uh even when i check my dms it's usually like there's too many things i don't like to respond often um but <laughs> I I saw it and I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, and and I figured with your love of science and and seeing that you were coming into Area 15 to be doing your uh, the the residency, I was like, well, this is someone I need to invite to the planetarium. I I, I do that quite a bit. I try and find folks who are coming to town and and say, hey, come over to the planetarium. And uh, I've had a few take me up on it, but uh, you were the you were the fastest. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. You jumped on it immediately. Yeah, of course. And I, I was thrilled with it because yeah. uh, you know the the here we are podcast and, and everything like that it, it it it's a marvelous thing so uh let's talk about your science background okay sounds good hit me uh hit me up well, what's we, your background we, we can start from the very beginning if you yeah. really want to because let's do uh, it. uh it actually started with uh my mom and dad they brought home a pickup truck full of telescopes and assorted parts from an unclaimed freight store when I was about seven, eight years old, maybe nine years old, something like that. So I started 
putting together telescopes. I mean, these were the these were the Tascos. You know, they were the the mass marketed uh, uh, telescopes. But uh, we had some three and a half inch reflectors, some four and a half inch reflectors, uh, some refracting telescopes. So we just kind of fixed them up, put them together. We sold a few to make back the money from how much they uh, <laughs> spent on the, the the telescopes. It was ridiculously cheap. I think 77 telescopes and assorted parts for $150. <laughs> and and so I, I spent my childhood uh, uh, building uh, and, and putting those scopes together and sighting them in. And we'd go out in the yard and we'd look at Jupiter and Saturn and, and, and all the planets and, and we'd look at the stars and everything like that. And and so that's really kind of where it started for that me. That is such a cool story. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the, uh, I, well, you listen to the show. I love asking people's <laughs> origin stories. That's yeah. one of the finest ones I've heard. Well, it, it is kind of an origin story, too. That uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things. But, uh, but yeah, so, so my parents are really actually the ones who are responsible. And from there, it just kept going. I, uh uh, eighth grade, I read uh, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, uh, and, which is yeah. still one of the most marvelous science books ever written. So good, yeah. And and from there, just branching out into all of that, and that's what took me into physics. Uh, and so uh, I started off, uh, when I went to college, I, I started off as an engineering physics person. Uh, so I was taking electrical engineering classes and physics classes. And... Uh, Kind of after a couple of years of the electrical engineering stuff, I was like, I don't think I want to keep doing the engineering stuff and just moved over to straight physics. And uh, uh, that was really what I loved doing anyway. I, I was always more of a theoretical guy. Uh, and so uh, so uh, I uh, switched over to just straight physics and never looked back. Um, so... Uh, Got my undergraduate degree in physics and uh, went to uh, grad school at the University of Missouri uh, in Columbia uh, and uh, started working with my advisor there, uh, Dr. Barham Mashoon. Uh, he actually, a theoretical astrophysicist, marvelous in the field. Um, actually, the, uh, the, the main journal was dedicated to him on the occasion of his 60th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, and so did my project that way, got my Ph.D. by talking about uh, the uh, gravito electromagnetic effect and actually uh, adding in the cosmological constant. So that tells you how old that is. I have no idea. <laughs> it, it's been it's been uh, so long. I, I didn't read a brief brief history of time until I was in my like early 20s maybe i was 2021 or something like that yeah. and uh yeah i, I got uh I, I got into physics for a few years in my early 20s liked it a lot and uh it's been so long since i've read <laughs> physics and you know in the show i've had like one physicist yeah. ever you're and, my first astronomer and i'm the first astronomy guy right now and uh, which actually makes me feel pretty good it's awesome and, and, yeah and so uh but but yeah, so yeah, as long as you don't mind me not knowing a no, damn thing. No, that's okay. And and <laughs> and I can I I'll, I'll explain a little bit here. So yeah. the the gravito electromagnetic effect it was my advisor's uh, thing. It, it's basically it's also known as the Machun effect, um, named after him. Um, what it is is so in electricity and magnetism, uh, moving charge creates a magnetic field. 
and that's what magnetism is derived from. Magnetism is actually uh, solely derived from uh, electrical charges moving. So my advisor thought, well, what if the same kind of happens with gravity as well? And so, uh, so he came up with this gravito electromagnetic effect, which essentially says that the gravity we're all used to, that's pulling us down towards the center of the earth, uh, that, that you know, makes us have to go 17,000 miles an hour to, to get out into space, all that good stuff. So what if that was gravito electric effect, kind of the straight line aspect? And then what if you set mass in motion so either, like in the Earth's case, it's spinning, it's also, you know, revolving around the sun, it's also, we're all revolving around the center of the galaxy. So with that moving mass, does that create a gravito-magnetic effect? Sort of a uh, circular uh, style of gravity that might exist in addition to the straight line gravity that everyone's used to. Mm. Um, and so uh, basically... You know, the, the, the thought experiment was if you put a clock on two satellites in, uh, in space and you send one in the same direction that the Earth is rotating and one in the opposite direction that the Earth is rotating. So you send them opposite directions in space. Is there going to be any sort of an effect? And it turns out there is. Uh, so moving mass does kind of create this gravitomagnetic effect as well. It's small. Uh, one orbit around the Earth is like 10 to the minus 7th seconds difference. But if it's a satellite, that's if significant. If it's a satellite, it's significant. Exactly. And, and so, so that's the gravito-electromagnetic effect in as small of a nutshell as I can get. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice, uh, manageable nutshell. Yeah. And, and so, uh, so what I did is uh, my, uh, my PhD was adding on to uh, the gravito-electromagnetic effect and uh, adding in the cosmological constant. Uh, so the cosmological constant was, at the time, what is now referred to as dark energy. So, uh, you know, the universe is mostly dark energy, then dark matter, then luminous matter. And so, um, but the dark energy is what opposes gravity and dark energy is actually what's causing the expand, the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. Can we talk about that a little <laughs> bit? Um, because, because is this, uh, oh boy, I am so rusty because, because the, the idea is, is that, um, that earth is not a vacuum in the way that we think about it necessarily because there is this dark energy mm -hmm. and the, and this is why you know part of the reason why we don't anticipate the universe necessarily collapsing in on itself yes that that is uh, that is one of the big things um because of the expansion uh, and you know the universe is still expanding it is expanding as we speak uh, there are things that, yes, are getting closer together, but that's a localized thing that just overcomes the dark energy. The dark energy is pushing everything so that eventually uh, there are folks who have done the calculations. And the last one I heard, about 100 billion years from now. So, uh, you know, the universe is about 13.8 billion years old right now. So give it another 87 billion years, roughly. And everything will be pushed so far apart that not even new stars will be able to form. There won't be uh, that ability because space has expanded so much and everything will be pushed so far apart that uh, eventually 
the last star will go out and the universe will just be essentially at absolute zero. Wow. Um, And so there's a lot of folks who say that the big crunch is probably, you know, non-viable anymore uh, as far as that's concerned. Interesting. Now, I'm sure there's probably some calculations you could make where you could say the big crunch is still a viable thing and it could happen. But uh, you're not you're not putting your chips on. uh, I I would put I would put my chips on ice (laughs) for the end of the universe rather than fire. (laughs) Okay, All right. Since we're in Vegas, I I won't go all in. But, uh, you know, everybody in science is always, well, I'm 99 percent sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so that's because because wasn't wasn't the inspiration for some of Einstein's earliest ideas of relativity and everything what what wasn't that kind of about weren't weren't they kind of trying to patent ether this idea of ether at the mm-hmm. time trying to solve like why the universe hasn't collapsed in on itself exactly and then... the static universe einstein actually believed in a more static universe he did not believe in the expansion at, at the time when he was working on relativity in 1906 in that time mm-hmm. period um and so the cosmological constant was his answer to gravity so that gravity went to pull things in the cosmological constant pushed things apart and they were balanced Hmm. and so he he kind of believed in the idea of the static universe and and that was the way that in which he could do it so Hmm. okay and then it kind of fell out of favor once the expansion was discovered uh and then it kind of came back in with the acceleration of the expansion. Yeah. A- and so, and, and was renamed dark energy at that point. So, so yeah, if, if you That's hear a lot of big changes in, in ideas years. in a hundred years. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, the, the, the last hundred years of physics have been the most monumental hundred years of just about any science. Really? Yeah. Um, hmm. you know, at least as far as going from black holes and, and things like that had been thought of before the 1900s. There were mm-hmm. there were folks who actually had thought of them in the 1800s and actually even earlier. Dark stars that uh, had gravity so high that light couldn't escape. There were, you know, people who actually had thought about that. Um, but starting in like 1906 with relativity and then moving into quantum mechanics and then, you know, y- when you think about the Wright brothers even with their aircraft and aerodynamics and aeronautics and, and heavier than air flight, you know, and you think about where we are today and, you know, like we've got the airplanes <laughs> coming over that we're hearing. Um, and, and it's almost ridiculous to think how far in a hundred years we went and actually really we even went that far because in 1969 the moon landing Mm -hmm. you know from 1906 to 1969 63 years we made it to the moon and that's you know all of the physics that was developed for that was developed in that time period that 63 year time period it it was nuts (laughs) But we're done now. We figured it all out oh, now. Oh goodness, no! <laughs> you know better than that. Just <laughs> come on. Yeah, I what wish. Are we gonna do? Let's wrap it up. Yeah, uh, it would be nice. But <laughs> um, well, it, it's it's breathtaking to think about how much we do know. Like when 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 we think about like how much do we have it dialed in 
the beginning of the because I because I know we don't know the exact beginning of the universe, but we have it down to like how many decimal points of of, of the second? Oh yeah, no, mathematically at least, mm-hmm. we can take things back to you know just like the first even like a couple of milliseconds yeah. uh, after the Big Bang. The problem is there was a whole lot of stuff that happened up to that first couple of milliseconds. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, the universe grew to almost the size it is now within that very, very small time period. Inflation, the, the expansion of the universe was was gigantic uh, in, in the first, you know, the f- first few instants of space. And then, you know, you take it to at about 100,000 years after the Big Bang is when matter could first start coming together and forming, where it wasn't just energy anymore. Hmm. And, you know, you've got the James Webb Space Telescope. 100,000 years is all? 100,000 years. That's fast. Yes, it was fast. And you've got the James Webb Space Telescope looking, trying to look farther and closer to that because you know the James Webb T- Space Telescope is looking at uh, spots in space where we couldn't see anything before and seeing things <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and so at, at a particular point um, you know they actually have uh, the, the one James Webb Space Telescope finding is that uh, the early galaxies seem to be bigger than were expected at that time uh, you know we're talking so you know 100 thousand years after the big bang is when uh and then it's a hundred million years after the big bang is when galaxies first started to be that's a thing it's still fast it's it's still fast yeah like a hundred million years that's nothing i mean you you know we talk about evolution quite a bit on this show (laughs) and and a hundred million years doesn't always get that much stuff done in terms of in terms of life oh exactly but you know a hundred million years uh, uh, actually got to the point where, you know, the first stars are forming and, and everything like that. And so, uh, so, you know, that's one of the things I, I've said a lot. Uh, you know, when you start thinking about those time scales, you know, most people can't really fathom 13.7, 13.8 billion years. There's, there's no human frame of reference for that. But when you start thinking about it and you go like, oh, 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 astronomy is not a good hobby for those who are fascinated by mortality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and because the time scales that you're dealing with, you know, our sun, five billion years, mm-hmm. the earth, four and a half billion years, th- those time scales don't mean anything to us until something triggers and it says, Oh, I do kind of get this now. I know that this time scale is a little bit scary. I love all the forced <laughs> metaphors that we always have, feel like the, like, okay, take it. Uh, say, uh, say a hundred years was a piece of paper and you stacked those. This is how far you would need to stack that to get to this. Uh, oh, yeah. Always, all those metaphors always crack me up. It's like, I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I'm picturing uh, 13.7 billion years as good as I'm ever going to. You can give me all the metaphors in the world and it's like, all right, I guess I got have as good of an idea as I'm ever going to have. 
probably. That's the thing about the human brain as well. Yeah. And you know, you you know this from all of, uh, uh, all of the biology that you're interested in yeah. is that the human brain, the way we perceive things is almost always in relation to other things. Yeah. So like when we're looking at the stars in the sky, uh, you know, on on a good clear night, you go outside, nearly all the stars tend to look whitish. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really do. But then you'll occasionally see like Betelgeuse in Orion or you'll see Mars out there, which Mars is actually out there tonight. Uh, no, the I didn't sky. know there was a celestial body named Betelgeuse. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Orion's shoulder star. Oh. Uh, uh, Betelgeuse, a rough translation is armpit, <laughs> uh, okay. but it's a very rough translation, but it's accurate. Um, Betelgeuse is a uh, star that... Uh, could possibly blow up at just about any time. It, really? It's, 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 it's one of those uh, that, that could go supernova. I mean, it could, have, it could have already happened, and we haven't seen it yet. Or it could still be another 10, 15, 20,000 years. Or it could Is this be another longer. thing I get to worry about? Oh, no. Can I add this to my <laughs> There's no, list of... Don't uh, worry. I, I don't have a, a... We're not just going to be shredded into nothingness by yeah. this... Thir- 1,300 light years. Thir- 1,300, 1,600. Yeah. It, it's a long ways away. Okay. And, and so if it does go supernova, um, the reality is our... Uh, our atmosphere will protect us pretty well. Okay. And we're not going to get hit by a huge amount of radiation just because a very just tiny a bit. Radiation. But we're, we're hit by radiation all the time anyway. Right. So, you right. know, our bodies are used to it. It's not that big of a deal. Okay. But not worried about Beetlejuice. No, don't Found worry out, That about was a whole it. roller coaster ride <laughs> that I just went on with Beetlejuice. Bunny from Hill. not knowing what it was <laughs> to feeling like a fool for not knowing it was orion's armpit to thinking that we are all going to possibly be obliterated at any moment to being like it's all gonna be okay probably okay uh sorry i i I hate to go off on too much of a tangent but what do you what do you think about these uh constellations Uh, uh, they're a little shaky constellations are a very handy tool okay but constellations have nothing to do with reality <laughs> it, it, I, uh, except in a classification scheme for us it's, i mean i i get that we're i get that you know i i mean there's insects that navigate by starlight and and are able to identify uh, certain stars and mm-hmm. things to navigate their way around and i i get how um i'm, I'm sure there's all sorts of um uh, creatures in the world and fish and everything else and and uh so it make it makes sense that primates like us that really got wandering about um would would really develop this instinct to um to navigate by the stars and and obviously we we learn well by constructing sometimes rather insane metaphors we're storytelling <laughs> apes and and um and so like as a as kind of a mnemonic device and everything you mm-hmm. can but I, I i get all that but boy like i just i just went to um two days ago speaking at area 15 i went to the illuminarium there oh, they yeah. have the space have you been in there yet i have not been in that oh, one i've been in a, i've been in a different one i saw the uh, cool. the the picasso uh, there was a picasso exhibit yeah. one i know it's a little different but it, the, the picasso one was like i 
yeah, I, it was okay. Yeah. It was, <laughs> I want to see like a Salvador Dali one or something like that. The melting clocks would probably lend itself very well to yeah, that. Yeah, the Picasso <laughs> seemed like it was, it was fine. It mm-hmm. was fine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's worth it's worth going. I just lower part. Same with and I must. I must say, in all honesty, I think I'm going to go to the wildlife one next week. But the okay. uh, the Illuminarium, it's a really cool space. But they have this uh, space program in there, and uh, there there's some really cool stuff. There's they have projections on the floor. You'll appreciate it oh, yeah. as someone that into projectors, and, and and then you like step on like asteroids and they shatter and stuff like that. Yeah, they got a lot of fun stuff in there. But but they had a they had a part where they they put up all of the a bunch of the like you know greatest hits constellations and mm-hmm. and everything and my god you look at these things or, or you fire up your phone and, and do one of the <laughs> constellation apps and i'm like is that a bison though <laughs> like i don't that's like you joke about the bison stars and <laughs> yeah uh, is there a bison i don't even know if there's a bison i had uh, a, i had when i was when i was at the planetarium i was at in texas uh there was a, a gentleman who um uh who uh, asked me if I could create a bison asterism that he well, wanted. Asterism. Okay, but, well, 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 we'll give you another definition here. So uh, the Big Dipper, most people think of as a constellation, but the Big Dipper is not actually a constellation. The Big Dipper... You are sh- just shattering... <laughs> <laughs> See, you should have had an astronomer on sooner. <laughs> I know, I'm a fool. But, but the Big Dipper is not a constellation. It's actually an asterism. An asterism is a piece of a constellation that has an identity of its own or of several constellations that kind of have their oh. own identity put. So so the Big Dipper is actually kind of the, the, the flank and the tail of the Great Bear Ursa Major, that constellation. Um, and and so, uh, uh, so I had a, a guy who actually asked me if I could create a bison asterism in the sky that would be available in the sky during this particular time. You should have period. asked me. I can yeah. connect the dots and it, make it. And I did. I, oh, I, I connected yeah. the dots using yeah. parts of Ophiuchus and Sagittarius because he wanted it visible in September and everything like that. And all of the stars were magnitude four. Uh, on a, In a dark sky, you can see stars down to about magnitude six. Has anyone tried to like make some like boobs or something in oh, constellations? Has there been any? There's... Uh, Virgo. There has to be some Virgo the Virgin. See, there's and, and, I knew it. Yeah. So, um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was probably the first thing they drew. I imagine it's it's a distinct possibility. Actually, no. Some of the first things were probably actually the Big Dipper. Yeah. Uh, um, well, that, that's because that's the pointing at the North Star, yeah, right? Exactly. And see the Dipper. Okay, I'll give you the. <laughs> you look at the Dipper. I'm like. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, a lot of things can look like a ladle. Exactly. But uh, I'll, I'll give you the Big Dipper. Yeah. But <laughs> any of the other ones? Are there any? Uh, okay. Orion does actually look like a person to a certain extent when you when you okay. when you really look at it. You know, Orion with the shoulder stars. I'll look harder. That's a bold uh, stance. I, I mean, but, you know, no head. Uh, really, think of it more like the okay. tunic. Uh, uh, that would have been worn at the, the time belt and the, with okay. the belt and everything like that. So yeah, so um, okay. I'm right. trying to think. The ones that, uh, you know, Sagittarius is supposed to be an archer, but of course most people refer to that the that asterism is the teapot. So when you're when you see Sagittarius, the brightest stars form what we refer to as the teapot. There's more to it than that. 
for the constellation Sagittarius. There must have been a lot of bickering. Oh, I'm sure. You know, but in the <laughs> now, that's actually one of the things. The uh, the International Astronomical Union was actually formed to standardize the constellations. When was that formed? Uh, it was over a hundred years. What's it was the right name of this organization? The International Astronomical <laughs> Union. Um, and and so they were actually they brought them they were brought together originally to standardize the constellations, and so they came up and using Greek and Roman and, and uh, then uh, you know Southern Hemisphere cultures, and um, basically just a lot of different cultures. Who was picked for it? Was this like a United Nations thing, or did like one country? It was pre-United just... Nations. This this was scientists who well, got together. But, but I mean, like scientists from around the world, yeah, or did one country be, just? It was supposed to be from around the world, and I think okay. it actually was a fairly worldwide. I think. It, I'm not 100. I just want to be certain. fair with our yeah. constellations. I, I, I do to... believe that it was probably through Harvard. Because Harvard, of course, at the time was one of the driving forces okay. for astronomy and everything. Uh, I don't know for certain. That that's one of the things. But I, if I had to venture a guess, I would say that the folks at Harvard tried to get everybody together to to do this. So they they got people together, and then people agreed. They're yes. like, absolutely. They that, they standardized. That looks like a bow. And yep. They they standardized the constellations. But it, I don't see it. It wasn't really about what the picture was. Okay. What it was was. The, they took the pictures, the dot to dots that people had used, and then they basically just said, okay, well, we're going to draw borders around these. And so that part of the sky is going to be known as the Orion portion of the sky. And then that portion of the sky is going to be the Ursa Major portion. And that portion is going to be Draco's portion. And that portion will be Virgo. And that one's Cancer and, you know, all of those. So they drew borders as well so that everything fit together like a puzzle so that every part of the sky was considered a part of a constellation. It was about standardizing designations of Ah. stars so that Ah. you would start with the brightest star in a constellation area and that would be known as alpha whatever of that constellation. And then beta of that constellation was the second brightest. So they used it as a cataloging tool. Uh, and when they standardize them. that's all logical and it makes sense it frustrates yeah. me as a comedian <laughs> wanting to make fun of the yeah but, well and, and up until that point it was just the mythology of it it was just uh, people telling the stories about the stars because they didn't really understand or know what they were and so that made it familiar and you know how humanity the great apes we have in our storytelling we want things to be familiar we don't want things to be scary and so that was really the driving force behind the mythology of constellations it was to essentially make the nighttime less scary by Mm. having these stories Uh, i mean it must have it must have been a must have had a fair amount to do with navigation at some period of time probably probably once Probably once there were more maps and more cities and more in, of the earth was explored, maybe maybe the utility of mm-hmm. of those kind of shifted yeah. a, a little so bit. The, but. The, you're looking at like the 1500s, really. Yeah. You know, but um, and and so yeah, the what was what was then discovered is that basically you could figure out where you were in relation to, say. You know, Greenwich, England. 
Uh, you could figure out where you were based on how high above the horizon the North Star was. So you could say, oh, I know I am at this line. If I was to follow this line and keep the North Star at that same height for me, if I was to follow that line, I would end up back at such and such a place. Oh, my God. My heart is racing right now. If I if I had to, like, get to, I, I think I'm... I'm 10, 15 minutes from Area 15 <laughs> here at this Airbnb that I've been at for nearly two months. If yeah. I had to get there without a GPS, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I would, I would, uh, you'd have to call it. Yeah. Like, if I, if, if I, yeah, I, I'd probably. Well, it probably wouldn't be so hard. You just walk that way until you hit Las Vegas Boulevard. Yeah. Actually, yeah, you can't even walk okay. that way until you hit Las Vegas Boulevard because that way's south. So you'd have to walk that way over. I can't even. <laughs> you're overestimating my <laughs> navigational skills. I, I can't. Like, people are like, it, it frustrates me to know it. People will be like, oh, just, um, I'm on the, like, north side of the building. I'm like, <gasps> oh, yeah, sorry. That's that's oh, no. probably the way I was telling you things when I was telling you how to get to the place. Oh, here. not necessarily. <laughs> it, it, it happens all the time to me. I'm like, oh, I forget. And then this uh, uh, sun goes, is it west that it says he said? Like, I have to, I feel so dumb every time. Just uh, And people used to have to identify so many different stars to be able to navigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the well, you know, sailors, the, the, the one nice thing about it is, uh, you know, out on their ships at that time period, you know, no electric lights. They, they, they would have had lanterns, but you know, they would have been able to see the stars. They, they would have seen a lot more stars right. <laughs> than what we can see now. And it would have been it would have been a little bit easier in that respect, at least. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, no. And then the invention of the uh, astrolabe, which was actually useful in determining exactly how high above the horizon a particular star was. What's what an angle. astrolabe? Uh, uh, basically, think of it as a little telescope without any lenses that you would look through and sight the star. And then it would have a hanging thing that you could then determine uh, the angle uh, above the okay. horizon um and that actually was one of the things that really helped with navigation uh when when they figured out how to do that sort of thing and then you know the the, the reality That's really is interesting oh yeah it, the, human ingenuity <laughs> uh really knows no bounds um because well first of all humans tend to come up with uh, things to make life easier that's always the case. We try to make our lives easier. Um, and so in order to actually you know, be out sailing on the ocean, these things made life easier. You, if you knew where you were, you were a lot better off. Mm -hmm. and, and so so a lot of that development, you know, in the, well, you know, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, as everything ramped up for taking those long voyages across and, and everything, it, uh, it was it was definitely necessary. Mm. <laughs> a lot of people didn't end up where they thought they were going to. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, all right. Well, going back to, uh, I don't know what you're. Cause, oh, tangential's but, fine with me. Yeah, I, yeah. I'll go off on any tangent. Oh no, I know. I I just I just I wasn't expecting that tangent to go so long. So now I don't know if I want to. Well, let's go back to the start of the universe again. So, okay. so uh, because I would like to, like, walk me through 
you don't need to give me like the textbook <laughs> run through. I, I want to know in your mind after after studying this, after running a planetarium, after um, you know, I'm I'm sure answering a zillion questions <laughs> from uh, little kids to a, a to adults. Mm-hmm. Um, when you kind of close your eyes and picture um, the his the early history of the universe. What are a lot of those, how does that play out? What are, what are a lot of those key moments? The milestones. Yeah, yeah, the milestones. Well, okay, so, you know, the first milestone, obviously, is just the start. The yeah. Big Bang, the big whatever people want to call it, you know, the, the, all sorts of jokes about that. You know, that milestone, 13.8 billion years ago, uh, is, is the beginning of it all. And... Then the next milestone, of course, is the expansion. The, the universe rapidly, very rapidly, becoming almost the size it is today. Granted, it's still expanding, but uh, you, you're almost, almost before time was relevant, the universe was as big as, as, as it is practically today, mm-hmm. save for the slowed down expansion. Uh, next milestone, uh, the energy uh, cools enough so that atoms can actually form. And we're talking about, you know, the first protons and electrons. So, you know, like the primordial hydrogen and helium that would have come together at that point. And so after that, the next milestone is the first star. Uh, there has to be a first star. There has to be a star that, sh- that, that, that emitted its light first. Mm-hmm. But the reality is it probably was a humongous thing. It was probably extremely large. And when it coalesced and came together so that that hydrogen mostly started to change into helium at the center by being squished together and the temperature being so high that it burned through that hydrogen so quickly, turned it all into helium very quickly. And then that helium, because it was such a large star, it was able to compress, and the helium turns into carbon and oxygen. And so you probably have a lot of stars that are forming all at roughly the same time. And probably a lot of these stars became uh, what was uh, more than likely the center of the galaxies, that we see today Mm. uh, in a lot of cases. And they might not have lasted very long because they were so large. They grew so quickly and their uh, cores were changed to iron so quickly that when they exploded and threw that material out into the universe, then the next could go on. So, um, and then, uh, you know, once you have stars, you have the galaxies that form. It was thought originally smaller galaxies formed and then first and then merged and became bigger galaxies. And so, you know, you're, you're looking at, uh, you know, the 13.5 billion years ago now. So you're still 300 million years. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, that to me takes us almost to the universe we see today. You know, gigantic stars that that actually threw this material out uh, into the universe 
and then led to us. Yeah. Yeah. Led, led to second generation stars, third generation stars, fourth generation stars that had higher amounts of more than just hydrogen and helium. Mm. And the material left over in those clouds around them to start forming those planets and things like that around as well. Just nuts to think about. <laughs> so what what is kind of if if as we as we explore more um, we're all a bit familiar with our universe in the way planets in our universe looks uh, look uh, I was at the planetarium and they the the thing outside that had all of the mm-hmm. um, the exoplanets the, the, the exoplanets uh, what what's what are some of the most vastly different mm-hmm. um, areas of the universe from what we're familiar with there's not a whole lot that are vastly different at this point. There are some. Um, and it mostly stems from what we know about our solar system to what we're finding about planets with uh, other solar systems out there. Um, and so, like, our solar system, we have the uh, the four inner planets, which are all rocky bodies with iron and everything like that. And then we have the four gas giant planets, which are, you know, uh, they have large amounts of hydrogen and helium also, and they don't have a solid surface. Uh, and then we've got the icy rocky bodies that are out, like Pluto is one of them and everything. Um, and so a, a lot of scientists thought, well, if we find other planets out there, we're going to find things very similar to what we have here. We're going to find the small Rockies. We're going to find the larger. Uh, and And what they've started finding is... There are things that are in between, you know, Earth and Venus are roughly the same size. We're the biggest of the, the Rockies uh, that are in the closer in. And Neptune and Uranus are four times the size of Earth, roughly. So they're starting to find things that are like, oh, well, there's some stuff that might be, there's, there's some planets out there that are like twice the mass of Earth. So are they actually hydrogen and helium? Or are they more rocky, or is there some sort of even a hybrid there? Um, so, so we're finding that the sizes of planets runs the whole gambit. Uh, it, it, it's one of those things that uh, really just uh, uh, if you get up to more than about ten times the size of Jupiter, you're getting into failed star category. And, and they call those brown dwarfs. And so a little bit bigger than that, and they can become stars. Mm. Um, so wait, wait, up to about wait, 10 times the size of Jupiter. Sorry, when you say failed star, what's... what's um, so brown dwarfs uh, are large enough that some amount of fusion probably occurred in their core, turning some of the hydrogen into helium. But there wasn't enough... Uh, mass, pressure, temperature to sustain. And so, uh, or there might actually be a very low level of fusion going on fairly constantly. And so those are uh, brown dwarfs. Um, They are, you know, anywhere from about 10 times the mass of Jupiter up to maybe, uh, not real sure, uh, but... uh, so yeah, they, they they just never quite, never quite made it. <coughs> Sad. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what, what a label to give them, too. These poor. Yeah. Just call them failures. Well, <laughs> a lot of times they get referred to as brown dwarfs, but okay. uh, e- even that. So much better. Yeah. It, it, not really that much better. <laughs> um, and what's. Uh, so it, it's, it's so fascinating that we can mathematically um, sort out. Uh, I say we like it's like you and me um, doing it. Um, mathematically figure out, um, kind of rewind the clock and, and see where all of this came from all the way down to milliseconds after mm-hmm. the after the Big Bang. Um, what about the future? What does the future of our solar system look like? Oh, the future of our solar system, we've got about 5 billion more years. That's and not bad. No, it's not bad. So we're, we're having like a midlife Mid- crisis yeah, right now. it's a now. midlife crisis. Okay. Um, what's going to eventually happen with our sun is it's going to start to run out of hydrogen at the core. The hydrogen's being converted into helium. Kind of talked about that a little bit. And and so what's going to happen is when, when that process stops, then uh, it's going to start to shrink a little bit. The sun is. And so it's going to contract, it's going to come in, and that contraction is going to lead to the temperature going up even higher in the center. Right now it's about 27 million degrees uh, in the center of the sun. So that temperature is going to rise up higher, and it's going to allow the helium, which is the sun's core is going to be mostly helium at that point, the helium will be able to turn into carbon and oxygen uh, through the fusion process. That releases energy also. So, so the, uh, the, the sun is going to, you know, it, it, then it will expand and it will grow and it will swallow Mercury, Venus, Earth, and probably Mars, uh, or at least go pretty much out to Mars. Um, and so at that point, you know, we're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that process will basically burn off the atmosphere. The oceans will go away. And if there are humans still on the earth when that happens, they're toast. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, if we haven't figured out how to get off, we don't deserve to. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, uh, how, how, how long do we have? Before five that? billion years, roughly. Yeah, I mean, we won't be here in five billion years, <laughs> whether, whether it's by choice yeah. or by accident, we won't be here in five billion years. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, but, and, and, and so those, as the sun expands, those outer layers will just kind of keep poofing off out into space. And what's left behind will be a core of carbon and oxygen, a very rigid lattice core of carbon and oxygen, which will literally be an earth sized diamond mm. in the sky. So twinkle, twinkle, little star was right all along, <laughs> like, like a diamond in the sky. That that's kind of what the, the they can they can end up being uh, the, those carbon and oxygen cores. Mm-hmm. That's a small star, like our sun. Our, our sun is kind of a smallish medium star, um, and so it, uh, it it will become a white dwarf where nothing will be happening, but that heat will just radiate until it finally cools off till to ambient temperature in the background. Bigger stars, they'll explode. <laughs> they actually go through that process 
carbon and oxygen, and then they uh, keep going higher and higher because that pressure is enough to push, because they're so large, it pushes more and more together until it reaches iron. And I mentioned that earlier, but the uh, once a core of a star becomes solid iron, then fusion stops. And the star contracts rapidly, and the shock wave from that rapid contraction blows the outer layers out, and you get a supernova mm. at that point, which seeds material out into the universe. Are there are there many collisions going on out there? Is it because you you mentioned that there's uh, all of this expansion, and eventually everything's going to get so far apart that there won't be anything at all. Um, but but in the meantime, are, are there any galaxies that I should be mm -hmm. keeping my eye out for <laughs> crashing into ours or well, anything? Of course, like that? yeah. In two billion years, uh, Andromeda is going to be hitting us. Uh, the What's Andromeda? The Andromeda galaxy is the. Uh, largest galaxy that is close to our own. Uh, it is right now about 2 million light years away. Mm. Um, and it's in the constellation of Andromeda. It's actually visible in dark skies with just your eyes. It kind of appears as a fuzzy patch. Um, but it's a, a spiral galaxy, probably actually a little bit bigger than the Milky Way. Probably has somewhere between 400 billion and 500 billion stars. The Milky Way is probably 200 billion to 300 billion stars in it. Okay. But almost, so, almost double the size? Yeah, almost double. Okay. Uh, maybe not quite. It might be the you know 450 to 300 kind of a thing, but you know I won't hold you to it. Yeah, est estimates are you know, <laughs> yeah, they're touchy circuits, touchy situations when it comes to to all of that. But uh, the the we will eventually merge with Andromeda, um, and there will be a few stars that do collide. The the just on average because of how many there are, but for the most part, what'll collide is the dust. Wait, how many how many stars in each again? Uh, Probably, you know, around 200 to 300 billion in the Milky Way and about 400 to 500 billion in the uh, And Andromeda. they're just going to merge yep. and those stars... Yeah, they'll pass like ships in the night. <laughs> that, um, that's how. That's just how not dense these exactly. galaxies are? Exactly. The, wow. the, 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 you know, our, the nearest star to our sun right now is about 25 trillion miles away. Yeah, that's a lot of empty space a, to move another star through. A lot of empty space. Okay. Uh, and, but the gas and dust that's there will collide. And so when the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies merge, that gas and dust is going to collide. That's going to trigger new star formation. More stars. More stars. So by the time the merger is complete, probably we'll see a large elliptical galaxy with not much gas and dust left that probably has upwards of a trillion stars. Wow. By the time it's done, so that's uh, yeah about yeah, two something billion years from now that we hmm. start the merger. <laughs> wow! And we can actually see galactic mergers happening. You know, we we can see about two trillion galaxies uh, in the sky. We can see two trillion galaxies. Yeah, and and that estimate actually went up in the last ten years. Uh, NASA used to estimate that we could see about two hundred billion. Uh, galaxies wow uh in in the observable universe but so we 10 times did we 10 times did yeah wow and and some of that is you know hubble and some of that is james webb now and everything but yeah 
So there's 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 at least two trillion galaxies out Who's there. Who's counting these puppies? Uh, just a density density calculation. Yeah, that makes a little more sense than uh, yeah. the check off by finger each well, when region. You, when you when you take the Hubble telescope and it's looking at an area of sky that we never had seen galaxies in, and then all of a sudden there's like six million galaxies. <laughs> that had never been seen before you know, the, the estimates could go up quite a bit <laughs> and 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 in those galaxies going back to something you said earlier th- this is like sort of the normish like yeah. uh, what we're familiar with yeah and, and this is this is because we can kind of um we we can judge based on the um the light being given off by a star, we can kind of see it's uh, what it's made out of, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Spectral analysis. And and so, um, and, and so, well, that that makes the different ones even more peculiar. Like, how, how does it happen when there's uh, when there's these outliers? Well, so that actually the the classification of stars actually goes back to Harvard as well. Um, and at the time, they hired uh, uh, calculators. I, I know it sounds funny, but they hired women to actually look through all this stuff, and, and they referred to them as calculators and computers. Um, and so one of when the women, was this? Uh, nineteen hundred, around nineteen hundred. Okay. Or so so uh, one of those women, Annie Jump Cannon, uh, actually classified uh, about three hundred thousand stars by herself. Uh, she she separated the uh, spectral analysis that Harvard had been taking of all these different stars, and hold on, wait 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 wait, I don't understand. What's this process like? Uh, well, uh, at the time they would take a picture of the spectrum, so they would run the starlight through a telescope, run it through a prism, and then photograph the spectrum that was produced. Uh, and so they had all of these spectral uh, pictures uh, that had been taken. Uh, uh, and so Annie Jump Cannon took and started separating the different stars, uh, the spectral ana- the, the spectral pictures by how uh, by how complicated the spectrum were, the spectral were. And so she designated the ones with the least complicated spectrums were A's. B's were the second, were, were the next most complicated. C's, D, she she did it just based on a, 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 a an alphabetical scale. And so what she started to find was that as she was putting more and more together, the the scale more and more. She did three hundred thousand. I, I, I don't understand 000. that. Well, she, how do you? <laughs> <laughs> what? tedious work and she just it, it was something that she actually enjoyed doing but but she also <laughs> she was very good at time it. To, she, I, she just wow. loved doing it and wow. and so so her, right. so her classifications of stars uh there were ones that you know for the most part saw that most of the stars fit into these categories okay and so the letters that are mostly left over now are O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. Though and then uh R S uh uh or R N and S. Uh, so that that batch was what most of the stars fell into as far as their spectrum was concerned. 
And they didn't realize it at the time, but now with the OBAFGKM, that's actually a uh, temperature scale as well. O stars are the hottest stars, and the K and M stars are the uh, the the least hot stars. Um, and so it's it's a temperature scale. It is a uh, you know a spectral scale, <laughs> but uh, so most of the stars can be classified in in those classifications and that's what we see so but uh yeah it's it's crazy um and for the longest time she didn't get the credit she deserved for for what she had done and uh it's really probably just in like the last 30 or 40 years that she's really you know been given a lot more credit for what she did no one was like there is some crazy lady that has classified <laughs> Three hundred thousand of these things. We got to give her an award or something. Yeah, yeah, that's, it should have been done. So that's insane. Yeah, I. I if yeah. my job was just to count <laughs> to three hundred thousand, like you'd want an award. I, I, I would win an award. <laughs> you you for would that. want one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's. <laughs> uh, astronomy. I still is, don't understand. It's, it's full of these crazy stories like huh. that. Be, you know, um, and, you know, it, there's a lot of people who, there are a lot of women who came up with ideas that were co-opted by male astronomers mm -hmm. as well. And the male astronomers won the awards and the women are just now being recognized that, oh, hey, maybe this is the person who should have won the award. Yeah, yeah. So well, that was that's happened. I think the uh, the first vaccine was introduced by uh, by a female, but no one took it seriously until a until a, a guy rebranded it. Yeah. Um, uh, not good with names, but that's uh, the gist <laughs> of what happened. Um, but uh, yeah, well, any anyway, what uh, as we start wrapping up, what about planetariums? Um, there, there's so many planetariums around. It, when when you reached out to me, the reason why I was so excited was because I'd been to a planetarium many times when I was a teenager and then in early 20s. Yeah, it may, may have coincided with some <laughs> of my weed smoking years. Um, You're not the only one. <laughs> no. There's a lot of people who come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Well, you have a hell of a gift shop too. I got a space pen from it. my first space pen. Yes. How how did I go? I went 42 years without a space pen. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Um, but uh, but anyway, as we as we start wrapping up. Um, what uh, what do you look forward to in advancements in uh, planetariums and, well, and and that sort of thing? Because we have this giant sphere opening up in the fall here yeah, in Vegas. Yeah, the, 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 the Madison Sphere Garden as well, which a little bit of consternation on my part. <laughs> hey, they're, they're, you don't think you're going to be able to compete oh, no, to compete I, with the twelve thousand seat? Yeah, no, I can't compete with a 16K by 16K dome. Uh, but, uh, you know, our, our planetarium, uh, we, we, it, it's about time it's for an intimate. upgrade. It's, it's much more intimate. We, we, we seat about 66 folks. And so, um, but, uh, 
yeah, we're, we need to do an upgrade in the planetarium. And so the biggest thing for me uh, would be changing from our halogen projectors to uh, laser projection. No, oh, nice. Uh, the laser projectors last about 10 times longer. You don't have to replace the bulbs constantly. I go through a set of four bulbs every year okay. uh, for my f uh, two projectors, which take two two bulbs each are they higher quality and yeah. everything too they, and then 600 the, bucks yeah. a piece so I, I i mean just in terms of the the the, the picture is the picture higher quality uh, with the laser well yeah the picture is definitely higher quality with the laser yeah. uh brighter as well uh that's one of the things that uh, you know occasionally uh uh we have some issues with the brightness on the dome i'd like to have it a little bit brighter but there's not really much we can do about that but if we go to the lasers yeah we'll be able to and upgrade to maybe a 4K system as well. That would be nice. Uh, so that's that's in the future for us. Um, I think some of the, 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 the next steps that we're going to see are going to be, instead of projection up, uh, you're going to actually see more uh, of the LCD screens. Mm -hmm. essentially uh, being because you can have the flexible screens now you can have the screens that bend and shape and everything like that um, the uh, our system the uh, company that makes our system has an LCD screen uh, in Salt Lake City that they mm -hmm. have uh, developed that can project their images that way and so I think that, that we'll see some of that coming in the future especially uh, most planetariums will not be able to afford it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of us, we operate on a shoestring budget, but, yeah. but we, get, we get out by. to the planetarium, yeah, guys, come on out to the planetarium, visit the, the Dale Etheridge planetarium at the college of Southern Nevada on the North Las Vegas campus. <laughs> uh, we're just off of Cheyenne Avenue and, uh, we're open on Friday and Saturday nights, six, seven and eight o'clock shows. Awesome. We open the telescopes after the 8 o'clock show, so we try and do a little bit of observing, too, as long as it's clear outside, and give folks a chance to actually see some of the objects with their eyes. Oh, i got to come and do that before I leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so, uh, um, but that's, you know, we've actually been really cloudy this spring <laughs> here in Las Vegas. You know, for for a city that supposedly has 330 cloudless days a year we've 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 missed a lot of our uh, uh, astronomy viewing uh, with the telescopes because uh, if we've gotten cloudy I, I blame el nino it's uh, <laughs> we've got this uh, you know the 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 pacific ocean's nice and warm right now so we're getting uh we're we're, we're getting some clouds in the evening but uh, yeah. so but yeah we open up the telescopes uh, come out check out a show uh we have uh, uh our uh uh, volunteer interns they come out and they actually help with the shows and they actually create their own uh, 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 star talks as well so we we show a, a like a feature presentation and then uh, we do a little star talk uh, that everybody kind of has made their own so it's a, a lot of fun our interns are very very fantastic very so. cool well, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to um, maybe we'll collaborate on a project of our own one of these days. One that of the is things the we've, hope. Been, we've been chatting about a little bit. Yep. Um, and uh, I have a lot to learn, but um, but that uh, seems like a fun thing to do. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for joining me, Andrew. Oh, I really enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun being able to to come out and do something like this, and and sometimes it's a lot of fun just to 
to be able to go off on tangents too. Oh, so, I love tangents. Yeah, I, I, we always we joked about it being tangential physics when we were undergrads. Yeah, we yeah. always went off on our tangents. Yeah, I love it. Um, well, thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people, and we'll talk with you more next episode.